listening to the Energy Talk podcast where we tell stories about energy transition in the global south. My name is Olubumi Olajide. This is the final episode in our series on distributed energy for people and the planet, produced in collaboration with the Global SDG 7 Hubs and the Energy Action Project, ENACT. In the final episode of our eight-part series, We'll be speaking about rethinking policy and finance for distributed renewables. And as always, the host for this episode would be Marilyn Smith. If you do find value in this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and share the episode with a friend or a colleague. We really appreciate you listening to the series, whether you're just joining in at the end or you've been with us all through. We say thank you very much and we hope that you enjoyed this episode and have a happy holiday season. And now, for the final time, passing over to the host for this episode, Marilyn, to introduce our guests. In recent years, when the countries of Sierra Leone and Ethiopia pop up in global news feeds, two stories have dominated. Repeated outbreaks of the Ebola virus in Sierra Leone bring video footage of medical staff in hazmat suits, being hosed down outside of very basic health clinics, and stories of trying to contain a highly infectious and often deadly virus in areas where very poor people live in tight-knit communities with minimal access to electricity. In sharp contrast, Ethiopia gets media attention for the regional conflicts linked to having built the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. When completed, it will be the biggest hydropower facility on the African continent. With a capacity of 5.5 gigawatts, it will boost the domestic economy by powering up cities and industry, while also generating revenue from exports to nearby countries such as Sudan and Egypt. In reality, huge numbers of people in both countries still have little or no access to electricity. In fact, at a national average of just 26%, Sierra Leone has one of the lowest electrification rates in the world. Shift the focus to rural areas, where the majority of the population lives, and the figure plummets to a mere 6%. In early 2021, the World Bank announced that it would support post-COVID-19 economic recovery through the Enhancing Sierra Leone Energy Access Project, with a grant of 50 million US dollars. The effort will provide electricity to 276,000 households and 700 health clinics and schools, as well as to businesses. Ethiopia boasts a well-developed grid and is a world leader in that almost 100% of electricity is generated from renewable resources. With 80% of the population living within reach of medium voltage power lines, it aims to achieve universal electrification by 2025. Again, the effort is funded, to the tune of $375 million, by the World Bank. The goal is to connect 1 million last-mile households while also building capacity across the sector. With that information for context, the last episode of this first series of podcasts from the Global SDG 7 Hubs brings us back to the main topics of the first episode. That is, what does it take to develop and deploy viable electricity solutions, particularly for very poor people in remote and underserved areas? Not surprisingly, the answer is a nexus of innovation and entrepreneurship, policy and financing. But where the need is so great, a fourth element comes into play, for better or worse. Specifically, that much of the financing comes from external sources. In turn, this can heavily influence what and where innovation happens, and how policy is shaped. To help us understand the interplay of elements shaping Africa's clean energy transition, we've selected these two countries at very different stages of energy development. From Sierra Leone, we hear from Paul Yilatena, Senior Technical Advisor to the Chairman of the Presidential Initiative on Climate Change, Renewable Energy, and Food Security. To this role, Paul brings extensive experience in implementing programs at the Water and Energy Nexus with climate development and social infrastructure. The latter covers area of healthcare, livelihoods, education, and agri-value, among others. 
And from Ethiopia, Henok Asifa is founder of Precise, a consulting firm specializing in finance, investment, business intelligence, and private sector development advisory services. A passionate entrepreneur, investor, and economic development architect, Henok's mission is to catalyze a technology-driven economic transformation in Africa. He's convinced that the tools of the fourth industrial revolution, digitalization, distributed renewable energy, artificial intelligence, and cloud computing, can allow Africa to pursue a unique growth path, distinct from historical and Western precedents. First, I'd like to hear a bit more from each of you about the current situations, including the energy stories, of your home countries. Paul, would you like to start? If you've been to West Africa, you'll see we live in clusters. Our village setting is very different from a village setting in Kenya or in Malawi or in South Africa. There, people live on their land, on their plot of land. So you have this shamba system, as they call it in Kenya, where everybody wants to live on their piece of land. So you find people dotted all over the country, small households, you know, all over the country like that, except, of course, in reserved areas. But in Sierra Leone, we live in community clusters. So you have my mom's village, for example, is only one family. This is somewhere around 15 people living in one small community. Their cousins and their next relatives are living in another community nearby, like two or three kilometers away, also clustered like that. So the reason why I bring this clustered approach is that it is very suitable for mini-grid distributive kind of energy supply or even standalone systems that are connected. So we became very attractive for mini-grid. Sierra Leone has one of the poorest statistics in the world when it comes to maternal mortality, child mortality. And one could understand why the mini-grid should be anchored around the healthcare system and then provide electricity for lighting for the community. But then, because there was no informed policy to guide that process, the healthcare system got electricity. There was enough to supply to the communities. But then the communities and less, they usually say less than a dollar, but in these communities, it's probably even less than 50 cents, uh, 50 US cents a day. And sometimes no income at all, because these are communities that depend on farming. It's uh, seasonal farming, uh, rain-fed agriculture. So they plow in the raining season, and then they wait for the early dry season to harvest. And that is when they have the bumper harvest, and that's when they have cash flow. After they sell their crops, they are back again to zero and waiting for the next planting season. And now you come in there as a mini-grid operator with all the mathematics and all the calculations done right, the cost of electricity in rural areas is two to three times higher than what I am paying in the city. This is for poor communities in rural areas. Where will they get the money to pay for, I don't know, two-thirds of the year? when there is no income at all. But if you really want to solve that rural farmer's one-acre energy needs, and you want to do that in his lifetime now or in the next five years and achieve universal access for 60% of our population that is rural, with only 2% of them having access to electricity, I think distributed systems are the way to go. We have to come back to the basic needs of energy in our countries. The basic needs. How can that farmer produce more on his farm with energy maybe for irrigation? How can that farmer on that small plot of land increase the value of his crop with processing that needs energy? Basic energy needs. Of course, you could say, well, we can connect them to the grid. I think there's no doubt that big systems are useful, especially for big communities, for industrialization, for growth, for cities. But in those last mile communities, it is going to take forever 
and probably not for the grid to ever reach because we know how expensive that is going to be. Henek, the statistics I mentioned in my introduction give the impression that Ethiopia is on the cusp of solving the electricity access problem for its entire population, and with renewables, no less. Is that an accurate picture? You know, our people are mostly rural. They are either running a small farm for a living or a small business for a living. You know, what's happening in Ethiopia In the highlands, we're getting a lot more rain than we're used to. So, in fact, lots of flooding. But then towards the eastern side of our country and in the lowlands, we're getting droughts, many years of droughts, six, seven years of droughts in a row. And the lowlands tend to be where most of the animal wealth happens to exist. So uh, meat production, dairy, all of these, I mean, the farmers are suffering. I mean, we're not forget about growing. We're talking about maintaining the assets and the livelihoods that they have already, there's still way too much poverty. There's still way too many poor people. There's still too many people dying of uh, very simple issues, very simple diseases, uh, still people dying of hunger. Malnutrition rates are massive. And to me, this conversation on energy is simply just one aspect of that. We're all really working to see how can we create opportunities for the world's most marginalized and for the world's poorest people who maybe in terms of just being born in the wrong place or at the wrong time or where society has not seen fit to be inclusive of them, to create an opportunity for them to pull themselves into a better place from where they are. Before we move on to the main topics of this episode, policy and financing, I'd like to hear from each of you about an overarching theme across this podcast series. That is, while big funders such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Investment Bank are pouring billions into energy initiatives, often they are not solving the energy needs of the vast majority of people. But that doesn't mean that nothing is getting done. Where is relevant innovation and entrepreneurship happening in Ethiopia and Sierra Leone? Now, I'm not talking just electrification along with the SDG7 hubs. We're already working with entrepreneurs. We're building systems here that are electrifying all kinds of agricultural activities. We're beginning to learn from how they're working on small plots with Ethiopian farmers that are producing animal feed that are pulling water out of the ground to to drive their dairy farms, milk collection centers being cooled uh, using solar panels instead of diesel generators, milking machines, poultry sectors starting to see, you know, incubators, lighting systems. Uh, We have a few innovations now adopting what was done in India, looking at hydroponics machines that can actually provide some of the solution for Growing feed in these sectors that are, in, especially in the areas within our country that are suffering from the terrible effects of climate change. All these innovations are happening in Africa. They're not happening in, in Europe or in America. And these small scale solutions and the business models that we're working on now, I see so much more potential in a changing environment rather than farming so much money into these large systems that are inflexible, are so hard to implement and take so long to see results from. And our entrepreneurs or young people working to solve the challenges these small farms or small entrepreneurs face needs to be supported. And the problem is policy does not align. It does not reward the right activities or the right actions that will lead us towards a more equitable, more empowering world for all of us. Instead, it tends to be, in most cases, hindering. Really, the opportunity we're seeing, though, is the opposite of that. It's really in entrepreneurs coming up with ways to lend to small businesses and small farms and households and rural areas using digital banking. No need to go around creating branches in every little town and every neighborhood of the continent anymore because every person's mobile phone or the store next door can actually serve as a bank. I go back to America all the time. It took years before I started seeing forms of mobile money that I saw in Kenya. People were paying 
for the taxi fares on the Matatus on a mobile phone before I saw Venmo appear many years later in the West because there's a vested interest, what they call the innovator's dilemma. When we are mm -hmm. copying Western policies, we're copying their constraints as well. I feel like we need to think beyond that. We need to have confidence in the kinds of things that are happening. We need to know that the solutions that will work in our environment are the ones that solve our problems, that take advantage of our opportunities. And we need to build on those. We, the innovations that we can come up with can go back and help the rest of the world, even the West. Yeah. Why not? The recent death of Henry Kissinger reminded me of hearing him speak about being the driving force behind establishing the International Energy Agency in the mid-1970s. At the time, he noted, there wasn't a government in the world that had anything resembling a Ministry of the Environment, never mind considering the social impacts of energy policy. Now, here we are, fresh from COP28, and growing recognition that a just clean energy transition must be a global effort. This implies that future policies need to make retribution for past injustices. So let's shift to the policy space. Henok, Ethiopia is now in the big leagues, so to speak. How are things going? What we're used to here is, is a central government that sits there and pretends to know it all for all of the 120 million people we have and basically come up this neat, beautiful plan of how to execute an energy policy and really how to serve every single household in the country. I feel like when it comes to our policy making, we do a lot more of aspirational and a lot less practical. That's, hmm. that's really a big chunk of what I see here in Ethiopia. Generally, when it comes to renewables in Ethiopia, we've done well. We're, we're better than most of the world. And in this respect, I think the West has zero to teach us. I'm not going to mince my words here. The problems that we are facing right now across the world is climate change and this challenges that poor people are facing, new challenges people are facing because of the environmental degradation. All of that happened because of these bad energy policies from the West. In that sense, we've actually done better than 99% renewable in Ethiopia. And our entrepreneurs, it is so important. They are supported and empowered in ways that make sense for us. To be more specific, you know, I see there's a huge role for distributed energy not just for lighting, but for powering all kinds of productive activity. And this is not going to come, obviously, to an advisor who saw how development happened or who studied how America developed or Germany industrialized or even China in many ways. So it's so important that our policy starts from the objective realities on the ground. And for that, what we need is to be inclusive right from the get-go, to start out by looking at Whose lives are we trying to help change? And what role does energy play in that space? You know, it's really, if we get policy right, if we can create a space based on our realities, you know, our reality is we're a distributed settlement. We are not like the West. We don't live like Europe. We don't live like America. Even other developing countries that have made lots of progress over the last few years in Asia, have diverted from us in many ways. And policy is so critical because, you know, it's one of those things, if you do well and if you get it right, can have wide repercussions across many different uh, sectors and can create many opportunities. Paul, as you've already brought up, Sierra Leone has much farther to go when it comes to scaling up energy, whether we talk about grid or off-grid options. How is your government doing on the policy front? Today's discussion on policy as it relates to the energy ecosystem, it's not a new discussion because policy regulation is one of the key elements of the energy ecosystem. And as we have said again and again, it is not even enough for it to be a key element. It's one element that controls or actually creates an enabling environment for the other elements to function fully or optimally. And it is a shame in most of our countries that 
it comes in as a side issue after other elements have been considered or practices are showing failure, then we begin to see the need to bring in policy in the discourse. And, and of course, as associated with policy is making that policy work, which is also regulation. Um, they come in later. And honestly, there is good reason to believe that these two, as they go hand in hand, should be upfront in the discussion uh, on the enabling environment. I'll tell you, in Sierra Leone, we recognize the role of renewable energy in our energy transition plan. We recognize the role of renewable energy to improve access in rural areas. We now even recognize, because we tried to improve access without considering productive use application, so now we recognize that even if you increase access in rural areas, if you don't increase productive use, then the rural communities will not have money to pay for lighting their homes. And now we are coming back to correct that mistake. So we recognize all of this because we've been through that process. But you talk to our leaders now to put the resources together and design policy that reflects that understanding. How does energy policy need to relate to the innovation and entrepreneurship driving the solutions that we spoke about a few minutes ago? In policy, especially in an innovation ecosystem like the one that we're seeing right now on the ground, where entrepreneurs are coming up with, you know, modifications of technologies or business models to serve markets, to serve users in rural areas that are not sufficiently being served by the grid or these large infrastructure projects, it's going to require some learning, you know? And I mean, the essence of it is we can't afford to leave this policy making to policy makers. It is policy that we need to figure out as we go. Innovation cannot happen within a context where Policy says, I have to understand it first and allow you to do things. Innovation can only happen when it's let to be happen. And then the regulation actually goes alongside with it as we're learning from the experience of the entrepreneurs. And I feel like we don't do enough of that. So the attention of our policymakers is really to review some documents based on Google or talk to the funders uh, and some international development institutions or listening to a bilateral funder from the West, rather than really building on the inherent knowledge that is really on the ground here back home. You know, we're all offenders in this. I appreciate your candidness, Henok, especially as someone who often reads policy recommendations written by people who have not likely been to a rural village in the Global South. Paul, perhaps you'd like to add something? Another issue that we experience in this learning is the back and forth, the back and forth. Because Enoch mentioned policymakers, and I asked myself, who are they? We always call them, they are policymakers. Who are they? I don't know them, honestly. I just know there are people who work in government that try to enforce policy and sometimes regulate, sometimes, really, because often they, they don't. But I also see distractors of the very policy that they are supposed to be policing. In Sierra Leone, we are going back and forth with tariffs, for example. So everybody understands that in countries like ours, if you remove like the duty, if you wave out duty on renewables, you actually can speed up deployment and uptake in societies. People can pay readily because they are cheaper. But yet because we are struggling with revenue, Somebody within the Ministry of Finance at some point says, we need to push this issue back into it. And then at some point, you have that waiver eliminated or removed. And then the prices of renewables goes up. And then another person comes and says, no, we have to revisit this again. So it's that back and forth, you know, going forward one step, going backward another step, or maybe two steps backward. It's slowing us down. We need that consistency. 
we need to gather that data that says, if you keep these waivers on for a period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, this is what you can achieve. This is how much jobs you can create. This is how much income you can save that rural farmer that he can plow back into his farm and produce more. We need to connect those dots to have those links between energy as it is with development, energy with agriculture. Our policy has to be informed to consider all of those. And that link between health, between agriculture and value addition, the link with jobs, women empowerment and empowerment of rural communities. We need to pick that out and be consistent. Policy that is backed by data and science can inform that. These systems are unique to our conditions. And again, we can learn from the mistakes and the learnings that we have, the successes that we have acquired in the last 10 years to build on that and design policy. So let's move on to financing. Throughout this podcast series, I've been struck by the huge gaps that arise when talking about financing for the energy sector and for distributed energy solutions. Development banks, investors, and philanthropists want to deal in millions or even billions of dollars, while often making the case that many African countries don't have the capacity to accept or manage such large sums. Or that other factors, ranging from low levels of experience to high levels of corruption, make it necessary to reflect associated risks in the financing costs. Yet on the ground, the majority of people whose lives would truly be transformed by access to affordable, reliable electricity have little or no money. They also have little or no access to financing they would need to be able to participate in off-grid systems or acquire equipment that would boost their productivity. So let's explore that whole spectrum of financing challenges, hopefully in a somewhat coherent way. Ethiopia did something innovative with the big system, the Renaissance Dam, and how they pulled resources within the country to mobilize it and to get it going. But it's not so easy to do, especially when you have money knocking on your door and somebody is a philanthropic organization or, you know, a development bank or any other form of international support is coming in, bilateral or multilateral financing, and knocking on your door. And you are in dire need of it. It's difficult to say no to it. And also difficult to police how it is managed. And this is just a reality. But you know also that when you say yes, yes, yes all the time, you are loading yourselves with the money, but with the problems that it comes with. Henock, as Paul mentioned, the Renaissance Dam is an extraordinary example of financing a huge undertaking. Where do you see ongoing financing challenges in Ethiopia? The problem I see from our side is the focus has been on large-scale systems where the state has invested literally billions of dollars out of our meager resources on large-scale power generation and not enough on distributing it and creating access to rural households. A few years ago, the Ethiopian government recognized off-grid, and that was a huge movement. In a sense, they recognized this and said a third of our population will be electrified through off-grid. That was a big step forward, and I really applaud that. The issues I still have is that off-grid is still seen as a stop gap measure. They do not see permanent off-grid solutions becoming permanently part of the solution of enabling rural populations, which is really contrary to what we're starting to see across many parts of the global south. So how do you get over that hump, both with your policymakers and with potential financers, particularly international ones? You want development assistance to come, but let it come as a pilot to show that something works, but not to disrupt the market. The same with government's approach sometimes to subsidies and so on. Uh, create incentives with the same amount of money directed in a way that it helps the market because there are models that work. 
and bring them out in your policy making and police it with regulation. You know, I mentioned that we can't say no to development money coming in, but we can have a conversation with philanthropists. We can have a conversation with development banks. Let's have a conversation with bilateral financiers and multilateral financiers. Let's talk to the EU. Let's talk to the World Bank. Let's explain to them why it is important to direct financing in the way that can ensure sustainability of development projects before even we start making uh, policy needs. If we have those dialogues and we understand each other, I think they will see reason. And I think we should try as much as possible to have those conversations and also to look at it in a holistic way. What will this development money do? Can it address our policy objective and our policy goal? Does it integrate perfectly with how we want it to go? If not, can we have a conversation with whoever is bringing that money to channel it in a way that it works for us? I think the development community has reached a point where they are open to those type of conversations because I think there are genuine people there, out there. Some of these philanthropists we are seeing now spending trillions of money, US dollars, for development. They're doing it out of genuine concern. The development banks, bilateral organizations, you see that there is some interest in solving problems. The challenge is we are not having those conversations with them to direct that money where we want it to go. And I think this is where we need to pay some serious attention. So we want a police, but let's have some good dialogue before we police. What is the outcome on the ground when funders are not willing to sit down and have those conversations? I still feel like we spend way too much resources on the big systems that don't really maximize or optimize for the resources we put on the ground. I think Africa really has a chance to innovate in the way it has done so in mobile telephony. We had, you know, the opportunity to skip over landlines and actually reach the most number of people quicker than uh, we would have otherwise done so by focusing on mobiles. I think, you know, there was some things we did right that enabled us to do that. I remember when I was a young first a graduate was my first job. My boss then, he was shocked. I was in New York City at the time when I rented an apartment and I was living on my own. I only had a mobile phone. I didn't have a landline. And it took him a few weeks to just digest that. And when I moved back to Ethiopia many years later, nobody had a landline. Everybody <laughs> had a mobile line. And, you know, it's amazing to me how based on that, new innovations have also become widely available. Imagine how much more money and how many more years it would have taken to reach our rural populations if we said we're going to use landlines. Same thing seems to be happening in the digitization space. If you notice, Africa is doing some really, really fantastic things. In fact, I would say there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that space for the energy because digitization, seeing a lot, a lot of progress on policy that promotes innovation. People are starting to understand that the way to be inclusive is to go digital. It reduces the cost of reaching and serving the most number of people on a per unit basis. And energy is not going to be any different. What do these big funders not get about what financing is needed and where? I'm thinking particularly about how do you finance millions of small, low-cost solutions, which implies mechanisms to get money behind innovators and into the hands of very poor people. I mean, finance itself, it's one of those key elements because, you know, you need it for the entrepreneurs as well as for the end users. You need for the entrepreneurs, they need to have sufficient capital to, you know, to import technology, uh, to distribute it and to, to deploy it. Um, and where it is deployed, uh, the communities where it's deployed, as I mentioned earlier, 
uh, usually poor communities. If we are to mention relatively poor communities, again, poor here, we have to be careful how we define it. But these are financially challenged communities. Most of their flow of capital is not in liquid cash. It's actually in what the exchange. So policing that or creating the enabling conditions that help them to access technology and deploy that technology in the environment they live is critical for them as much as it is for those who import technology and try to deploy it. What challenges do you see, Henock, at this interface of financing to stimulate innovation that would boost individual livelihoods and thereby support local economic and social development? Our local systems, financial systems, and we looked at the agriculture system. We look at it a lot because that's where our poor exists. Two out of three people are employed in small-owned agriculture. It accounts for a third of GDP, okay? And then it's the major input to our nascent manufacturing industry and a big chunk of our exports and foreign currency depends on agriculture. It only receives in the low single digits of bank financing in the country, one or 2%, 33% of GDP, getting one or 2% of access to finance. Now the question has to be asked, I mean, we're talking about billions that are being generated in the local financial system. What we need to do is figure out the technologies in the business model. The technologists and the entrepreneur creating a milk cooling system or a solar pump that is uniquely appropriate to a small farmer in our region. It needs to make business sense for them to do that. When we go back to the entrepreneurs, the small farmer wants to buy. You know, there's so many farmers in Ethiopia using diesel generators. You know, like we know the market already exists. They don't want to use diesel generators, you know, but they need to be financed with this new technology and they need to be confident that the technical capabilities are around. So when it breaks down, somebody's there to help them fix it. That ecosystem needs to be there. And the one-time financing cost is really what they're scared of because we know in our very limited experience already, a solar water pump for a small farmer living next to a river or has shallow water resources they can manage well, could actually double, triple their income on a yearly basis. And we know they can pay for this. The cash flow will pay for that. We need to create the environment so that systemic change shifts and digital banking has a big role to play in this space because it lowers the cost of providing loans to these small farmers. We need to make sure we tap into this major system. Now, I do not see that happening that much in the development industry with some few exceptions. And that's really my criticism. Are you starting to have those conversations and are you seeing change? People are beginning to understand the need for operational capex. I mean, for running capex, they are beginning to understand the need for sustainability plan for every development project. So we, we stop those white elephant projects, but it takes time. It takes time for them to understand and for them to put money to it. So projects just don't end at the deployment stage when a photograph is taken and sent to the donor. But several photographs are taken every six months down the line for three, four, five, 10, 15 years downstream. Solar panels last for 20 years, 25 years. We can make batteries also last that long. Inverters. Charge controllers can also last that long if you include that operational cost attached to it. It takes only 2% of the total cost of whatever size of solar home system or standalone system you want to deploy. And it takes between 10 to 15% of that total cost to operate and maintain the system and sometimes include running capex in it. So for example, replacement of battery for small systems. I'm not talking about large systems, small systems, standalone systems. 2% assessment, 10 to 15% sustainability plan. But if you go now to an international financier and you tell him, I want to deploy a solution. And then they tell you, how long does it take you to deploy that solution? You say, okay, I can install it in the three to four months but I need a sustainability plan attached to it, including running CapEx for two years or three years. 
or even more than that, because you need to replace batteries after three to four years, acid-lead batteries. And then they tell you, no, the project ends at the, at the time it is deployed. You can't continue beyond that. They remove that 10 to 15% of that funding, small amount of money compared to the total amount. It's not included. And then, of course, you don't want to say no. You take the project, you install, but you don't have money to operate and maintain it. And let's say you are doing that for a farmer in a rural community and you are demonstrating that it works with a successful farmer. And that farmer fails after two to three years. Tell me, are other farmers going to uptake that technology? Are they going to invest in it even if they have the money to do it? No. So these are the kind of things that we need to capture in this dialogue. Henok, would you like to respond to Paul's thoughts on this? Philanthropies and the development uh, industry, quote unquote, we just, we must do better, uh, simply speaking, uh, because, uh, I mean, yeah, good intentions are not enough. I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions uh, is a correct one when it comes to us all. I mean, I say us because we are a part of the problem as well. And, and in many cases, instead of helping, we end up even retarding, slowing down, even reversing some, some development. Uh, eventually, what needs to happen is our local finance system needs to pick up things. What we need is systemic change that our banks and financial institutions are actually financing these high-impact, highly profitable and highly useful uh, technologies and businesses. Eventually, that's where we need to get to. And what development finance should really be doing is helping to create that environment. It's helping to create the environment of trust between the banks and the entrepreneurs to help reduce the risk of innovating new technologies and new business models and to really begin the process of scaling up these operations. I think I'm not sure if development finance can go beyond that even though we keep thinking it could, and we keep trying to do things in ways that actually distort markets' incentives and alignment of actors. We tend way too much development finance money still comes in and becomes a distraction from the markets. But what I want to emphasize here is the entrepreneurs that are coming up with these solutions to enable rural populations, increasingly they're seeing an environment that is more supportive of their innovations, more forgiving of their errors, and more enabling of their needs, not just supporting them policy-wise, but even incentivizing them. Even state coffers, money going into entrepreneurs. We're seeing startup acts, for instance, across the continent. I mean, I think Senegal and Morocco, and then a number of countries now, I mean, in Ethiopia, we have the policy that was fully drafted, but people were nervous. So we have yet to see it enacted because what we're used to here is as a central government that sits there and pretends to know it all for all of the 120 million people we have and basically come up this neat, beautiful plan of how to execute an energy policy and a digitization. Well, not in digitization, I should say we're doing much better there, but in energy and, and really how to serve every single household in the, in, in the country. Really, the opportunity we're seeing, though, is the opposite of that. It's really in, uh, in entrepreneurs coming up with ways to lend to small businesses and small farms and households and rural areas using digital banking. No need to go around creating branches in every little town and every neighborhood of the continent anymore because... Every person's mobile phone or the store next door can actually serve as a bank. So let's bring this full circle. How does the reality of so much external financing influence what is happening in Sierra Leone and Ethiopia, and indeed across the Global South? Most of our policies are driven from external influence. It's usually about who pays for it. Simple things, even our NDCs or our updated NDCs are paid for through development assistance. And that is what drives it. It's just a traditional saying, who pays the piper chooses the tune, right? 
So it reflects where the money is coming from. Again, here, most of the, whether it is grid supply or off-grid or the mini-grids that we are talking about, the standalone systems, it has also been driven by development assistance. Again, there we go. If you ask me, how can a government, the government of Sierra Leone, uh, police development money? That is tricky, right? Because we are talking again about an influence from outside that is powerful, that is difficult to police. Yeah. So dialogue is needed, definitely. Given all that we've discussed, what message would you like to send to policymakers? They want to look for money from outside. And this is where we need to challenge them. I think we should start challenging them and say, look, we have reached a critical mass of knowledge that you need. Uh, some of us have spent years out for obvious reasons, but we are back. And there are many people who are coming back like us and others who have not left that are able to design good policy or have ideas and knowledge how to do it. And it will not be as expensive as it will be if you are importing. But this is, again, not to say that we don't need knowledge from outside. We do. But we can tailor it in a way that it is not too expensive to pay for policy. I don't want to blame any leader in Africa for it, to be honest. But I would say we need conversations. We need serious conversations because there have been mistakes Again, over the last 10 years since the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, we have seen systems, very costly systems deployed, including some of those mini-grids that I mentioned, that are today just white elephants because there was no plan whatsoever to look at the O&M part of it. So it was mostly CAPEX. The decision and the, the money, the focus was on the capital expenditure. How much does the technology cost? We deploy it. It works one or two days, one month or two months. We are done. We take photographs and we are gone. And then it breaks down. No money for operation, no money for maintenance. But no experience from those experts coming this way on how to manage small systems. But they are giving us advice how to deal with it. This is where we have to be careful because there are good things that we need from the West when it comes to innovation, to technology, to finance. We need, we need them. But they need also to be careful how they advise us on policy for small systems because we believe that the knowledge is not there. The knowledge is not there. We have to look for that knowledge somewhere. And this is what Henuk was saying, that let's look for the knowledge in our traditional way of life. The learnings that we have, especially the side of finance, can also inform policy to the extent where we avoid that disruption that Henuk mentioned. Henuk, anything to add in relation to messages that need to get through? In Ethiopian context, there's still way too much big systems happening. Even when we're talking about non-grid systems, I think there's still too much emphasis on large mini-grids that takes so much time. You know, there are initiatives, including those being supported by large philanthropies that are looking at sort of hitting the ball out of the park, if you will. Very American expression. I apologize for that. But you know, there's a lot of base hits we can make, small moves. We can electrify the health posts and health centers around rural Africa by using one and two solar panels, except that's not what's happening. Most money is coming in and they're designing these massive systems that try to solve all the problems at the same time. And they all get stuck in the logistics or in the access to finance or it's really infuriating. There's a vested interest, what they call the innovator's dilemma. When we are mm. copying Western policies, we're copying their constraints as well. Yeah. I feel like we need to think beyond that. We need to have confidence in the kinds of things that are happening. We need to know that the solutions that will work in our environment are the ones that solve 
our problems that take advantage of our opportunities. And we need to build on those. The innovations that we can come up with can go back and help the rest of the world, even the West. Yeah. Why not? It's uh, our entrepreneurs are paying attention to a donor rather than looking at serving a customer, a rural household somewhere uh, in the continent. We're seeing, um, you know, it's just too much money you can make by writing a report. You know what I'm saying? It's very hard to ignore, as Paul was saying, even at the entrepreneurial level. And I find that to be hurting rather than helping. So our policymaking really needs completely rethink, in my opinion, when we talk about at a global level, achieving universal electrification or achieving no hunger or economic growth, all of these issues really are not starting from like, how is the Sierra Leonean farmer living? What are they facing? We don't know how they're living, but we pretend. And essentially, we're all trying to cascade from a global point of view all the way down to the ground. I mean, the Ethiopian farmer, I'll tell you, is uh, on average living on less than a hectare of land. And I say he because they tend to be mostly male-headed, but there's a large, significant number of women-headed households as well who are trying to build a life for themselves and for their families to send their kids to school, to make sure their kids grow up healthy and to make sure there's adequate nutrition. Looking ahead, do you see opportunity for the type of change you believe is needed in your own countries and across the Global South? And to accelerate not only energy access, but inclusive energy policy that truly lifts people out of poverty? We know now that we have to go to smaller systems, decentralized systems. And that means also our policy Formulation should reflect that. We have succeeded in some areas, and today we have evidence. And this is why I value our relationship with Selco Foundation through the Global Hubs and the partnerships that we share with Henuk and others, the South-South learning and experience, that with these small learnings, these small systems we are deploying, we are beginning to see what can go wrong and how it can be corrected and also making some good estimates. We have learned, even if it's for a short time, we're talking about uh, 2014, after the Ebola outbreak, that is when we started rolling out mini-grids in Sierra Leone and most standalone systems. We are talking about 10 years of learning. Where are those learnings? Can we bring them together and build on them and move forward, we don't need to go back 30, 40 years. Just 10 years is enough. 10 years of documentation, of learnings, and the experiences of failure and some successes, we can build on that and design policies that work for small systems. The question now is who pays for it because policy process is expensive. It is not cheap to do policy. Consultations need money. You also need people who are trained and are experts to do it. You can have the consultations and everybody can tell you their view, but you're not going to do everybody's view. You're still going to synthesize what you hear from those consultations and turn it around into something that you can police. Actually, that is where policy comes from. It has to be policed through regulation. Can we say we really don't have the resources as a country to develop good policy? I would want to challenge our leaders on that. I think if we're really serious and we want to address our issues in a sustainable and lasting way, we have to be prepared to pay for the processes that leads to good policy. Henek, do you think valid critique offered up by people like you, who are trying to work from the bottom up, can trigger people at the top to shift Africa onto a more dynamic and more effective path to having clean energy play a central role in sustainable development. I'm a great optimist about, you know, the work of our innovators in, across Africa, our entrepreneurs, and generally the global south. I have so much hope the distributed solutions will create a lot of value for the most number of people in the continent. I think good intentions are not enough. We need to take the next few steps 
and make sure that good results come, good intentions could turn into terrible results. We should know that and put the user, the people who we want to benefit at the center and work with these entrepreneurs and community groups to reach it. I think there is so much energy there. We just need to listen and we need to intervene where we add value, not where we distort, not where we are uh, helping to enlarge our already large egos. Lots of values being created. I mean, we cannot afford to wait another 10 or 15 years to reach for the grid to reach hard to reach rural populations and empower them while people are dying today. I see that distributed energy could be the area and, and there are reasons to feel this way that a lot of innovation is happening in Africa, in the sub, in Indian subcontinent and other developing countries more so than in the big countries. And maybe there is something we can plow back and maybe together if we listen to each other, we can help save the planet as well. I see much like my friend Paul here, the greatest promise happening in distributed off-grid, small-scale <laughs> systems where lots of potential exists. The biggest hope I have, I know the biggest hope Paul and the rest of us really harbor is this energy we see from, from all these innovators, all these entrepreneurs that are really doing their best to change the environment based on their current realities. The recent COP28 negotiations garnered international headlines because some of the most powerful people in the world convinced some of the wealthiest and most polluting companies to start taking steps towards transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels. While this will help reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the long term, it does not in any way address the massive and chronic energy gap that undermines individual health and well-being, as well as sustainable economic and social development in the Global South. According to the World Poverty Clock, some 630 million people, 8% of the global population, still live in extreme poverty. That means earning and living off less than $2 per day. Disturbingly, this is 30 million more than in 2016. The rise most certainly, to some degree, reflects overall population growth. But it is also the case that without access to reliable and affordable energy, the world's poorest people will remain desperately poor. Over the eight episodes of this podcast series, we've examined, as Henock put it a bit earlier, a remarkable range of distributed energy solutions that deliver base hits to these marginalized communities in agriculture, health, and cooling. In this regard, the biggest news from COP28 is a memorandum of understanding between the International Renewable Energy Agency, the United Arab Emirates, and Selco Foundation in India to launch the Empowering Lives and Livelihoods program. By building multi-stakeholder partnerships that combine the resources and expertise of governments, private sector, development banks, financial and technical institutions, and philanthropy, the initiative seeks to secure a collective commitment of 1 billion US dollars dedicated to this specific aspect of the energy transition. As just discussed, investments directed towards innovation and entrepreneurship must be backed up with sound policy for energy and related areas. In turn, it is critical that the entire spectrum of financing be strategically reformed to ensure that both innovators and individuals can access resources. Across all areas, action needs to prioritize the principles of energy justice and inclusiveness. The Global SDG 7 Hubs is committed to playing its part by building up networks across the Global South to create the ecosystems necessary to participate in policy and finance frameworks that will ensure scale-up of proven distributed energy solutions. To learn more about the wide range of activity underway, visit the website of the Global SDG 7 Hubs at www.globalsdg7hubs.org. 
Search The Energy Talk on your favorite podcast platform to hear past episodes of this series. Finally, to wrap up this series, I'd like to again thank our various participants. From Selco Foundation, Harish Hande, Rashida Misra, Huda Jaffer, Nirmita Chandrasekhar, and Supriya Gowda. Also from India, Gauri Singh, Deputy Director General at the International Renewable Energy Agency, Shri Ramkumar, Project Director of the Meghalaya Health System Strengthening Project, Ganesh Neelam of Collectives for Integrated Livelihood Initiatives, Bijal Brambat of the Mahila Housing Trust, Sweta Narayan from Healthcare Without Harm, and Anshul Oja from the Desert Resource Centre. We also heard from experts on the African continent, including McKenna Areri of the Global Alliance for People and Planet, Ralph Ruthart of World Vegetable in Kenya, and of course the guests of this episode, Paul Tenayila, Senior Consultant to the Government of Sierra Leone, and Hena Kasifa, founder of Precise, a development-focused consulting firm in Ethiopia. And bringing global insights from the World Health Organization, Heather Adair Rohini. On the production side, thanks to Olubanmi Olajide and Chigozi Uba of the Energy Talk, and to sound engineer Colin Clausen. For support in the series promotion, thanks to Renee Jose and Al Mustakim Balogan. And for coordination support, Prashant Sharma and Sneha Fatima of the Global SDG 7 Hubs. This podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Village Empowerment. For the Energy Action Project, Enact, I'm Marilyn Smith.